This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone, I'm Chris Wynn and welcome to the Rocker Report podcast in association with Sunderland Community Soup Kitchen as we return after the international break to build up to our sixth League One fixture of the season where we have a top of the table clash according to the early league table as we take on second place Accrington Stanley at the Stadium of Light. Uh, so to bring us up to speed with all the latest at the WAM Stadium, we are very pleased to have the company of Dan Joel from BBC Lancashire. Hello Dan. Hello there Chris. Thanks for joining us, how are you keeping? Pretty good, thank you. I'm glad the football's back. We've got uh, lots of plates spinning in this part of the world in a very busy patch, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I was going to say, you, you mentioned before we came on, I mean, how, how many clubs do you actually cover? Well, <laughs> from the Premier League to League One, we've got seven clubs that we cover week in, week out, every game, mm. uh, as, as much coverage as possible, and... Pre-match, post-match, covering the matches, all that kind of stuff. We've then got uh, two non-league teams in the National League North, and we've got, I've lost count, but in our official transmission area, something like 14 non-league clubs below that, and that's without counting areas of old Lancashire that are no longer <laughs> part of the Radio Lancashire broadcast area. So if you were to talk about you know traditional Lancashire, you'd add the Manchester clubs and Wigan and Bolton, Rochdale, and all these kind of clubs as well. So... At the moment, we're on seven, and it's the biggest that the station's ever had. So we are really fortunate as well because I personally like the fact that most of them are sort of Championship League One, smaller clubs. You get a lot of Mm. access, and they're a lot more, let's say, um, collaborative in their Mm. approach to these things, whereas they can sometimes, clubs can be a bit of a pain, (laughs) to be honest. Yeah, it must be good fun though. I mean, do you get to pick and choose or are you just kind of given your assignment for the weekend and that's that? Uh, it, it varies. It varies really. It'll depend on, um, <laughs> because of, without making this into a podcast about the BBC, <laughs> because of the, the cuts that there have been, even in my time working for the BBC, we're no longer in a position where there's a correspondent for this club and a correspondent for that club because we simply don't have enough people. Um, I do a lot of Accrington games. Um, that's just because I've done Accrington over the years for a long time and my kind of area of responsibility is more East Lancashire. So I'll do Burnley, I'll do mm. Accrington Stanley um, and geographically it's convenient where I live to go to Preston North End, for example, whereas Fleetwood or Morecambe is a lot further away yeah. relatively. It's like a three-hour round trip to go to Fleetwood, for example. So it's not quite as easy as that. But I... 
always try to see all of our teams a few times a season. Um, I was at Chorley against Gloucester City on Saturday in the National North, which finished 9-0 to Chorley, which was a first for me. Wow. And I'm sure you've got your your favourites over others, but I'll not I'll not ask you um, which ones you prefer over others. But uh, but I mean, I said at the top in the introduction about this being a. I know we're only five games in. I couldn't have played six games so far. But uh, top of the table clash in League One. Uh, does that still sound a bit odd to the kind of local media talking about Ackerton being in that position? Well, it it's a bit of a twofold one to be honest, Chris, because. Uh, it's too early in the season to talk about top of the table clashes and I'm going to yeah. bust out the managerial cliche that you can't look at it <laughs> until at least you've had a good look at half the league, you know, 15 games, maybe something like that. But obviously a fixture like this is going to be used as a, a benchmark or a barometer or a, a yardstick for mm-hmm. Accrington. And when Accrington did get promoted from League Two, that was the inevitable question that John Coleman, the manager, got asked. You know, you're going to be playing Sunderland in a in a league game. And so, yeah, of course, the idea that the two clubs are at the top of the table and, I mean, hypothetically, a winner would remain top of the table. Not that it would make any difference after six or seven games and you don't get any prizes for getting it. It's just worth three points the same as any. And I am sounding like a manager, though, and that's not the point in this. <laughs> but as a sort of step back and take a look and take stock and let's think about where the two clubs were, you know, 20 years ago, for example. Mm. Yeah. The idea of Accrington and Sunderland being on a level playing field in every way imaginable, the league table tells you that, um, Mm. is one of those little milestones that'll, that'll make Accrington fans think, or to be honest, I think it'll make non Accrington fans kind of scratch their head and rub their eyes a little bit because, I think Accrington fans have kind of got used to it because since John Coleman took charge for the first time in 1999, they've had four promotions. And not four promotions, I do him a disservice. They've won four titles. He doesn't do, apparently, promotions without winning a league, he keeps telling me. So they've won four leagues. So over that relatively short space of time, they've known an awful lot of success. So there's been lots of these milestones along the way and lots of these big clubs and lots of these moments where you go, can't quite believe we're there. I mean, just talking, if we're talking about kind of dreaming and, and looking how things stand, if we stop the league season right now, next season, Ackerman would play Arsenal in a, in a, in a league game. But uh, but anyway, that's, uh, <laughs> that's uh, like I said, it's too early in the season. But uh, but you did mention actually going way back to, to those, those promotions. I mean, that, that, that was kind of between 2000 and 2006. Ackerman went up, uh, had three promotions in six seasons, like like you said. And then twelve years in League Two, which actually probably an achievement in itself. But but then to get promoted to League One in twenty eighteen, that that was probably something that most Acton Stanley fans couldn't imagine fifteen twenty years ago. Oh no, absolutely not. The the big dream, the big aim was always can the club get back to the football league after what happened in in nineteen sixty two, and it's very strange, or certainly was strange, maybe ten fifteen years ago going to Stanley because there was a a generation missing of Accrington Stanley fans. So there was the the older generation who would have seen the old Accrington and gone to Peel Park and seen them in the 50s and the 60s. And then there was a young generation of supporters who'd maybe started watching them from John Coleman coming in or maybe a little bit yeah. earlier than that. And kind of anybody in the middle, like my parents' age, there, there weren't too many of those. So it was a holy grail and it was it's been 44 years since we got back in the Football League and they did get back in the Football League and it was wonderful. And then those years spent in League Two, 
the club experienced something that it wasn't used to because John Coleman and Jimmy Bell left the club and, and went to Rochdale. And then there was Paul Cook and Liam Richardson and James Beattie, who all came in and had relatively short tenures, which were punctuated by, if not quite full-on relegation battles, certainly trying to consolidate your position and, and scramble away from those lower reaches. But after a couple of years, when John Coleman came back, he was very clear that uh, consolidating and sitting in the middle of League Two was was not for him. That's not what he wanted to do. And he managed to assemble players without a lot of reputation, without a lot of fanfare, and without a lot of in some cases, pedigree, to be perfectly honest. Hmm. And the kind of, the unit was more than the sum of its parts. And and actually that season, 17, 18, when they did win League Two, it was a continual recurring theme that you would go to away games or you would welcome, you know, visiting press into the, into the press box at Stanley. And there would be this sort of feeling of, oh, it's great we've achieved, isn't it? And then kind of in brackets or the subtitle would be, the novelty will wear off, you know, the wheels are going to fall off it. And it never really looked like it was going to happen. And it was, it was conclusive and it was comprehensive. And since Stanley haven't been in a league one relegation battle, they've at times flirted with it. At times they've been down there and had poor runs, but it's never really been a realistic prospect of, of dropping out of the third tier, which is going some, particularly because of the changes that have been made to the club and the infrastructure. And you'll see when Sunderland come to Accrington later in the season, the ground is vastly changed. The, the pitch has been worked on. There's work going on on a training ground. And these infrastructure things are almost as big as, as the achievements on the pitch. And the way John Coleman always described it was that previously the progress on the pitch was so emphatic that he felt like the football was pulling the club along and it was like mm -hmm. rolling a giant boulder up a hill and, and trying to, to keep it going. And now belatedly those things off the field have started to catch up to the point where, although it will still be a surprise to the ordinary observer of football that Accrington are in league one. And I quite understand that <laughs> there will be comparisons that you can make with, for instance, Burton Albion, who have mm -hmm. put all that infrastructure in place and have developed and they are on a on a level playing field. They are on a par of the things they've put in place to manage the football and the football has continued at a level that that, that infrastructure can work with, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and you mentioned those those first couple of seasons in, in League One. Um and I think what was it the the first season was seventeenth. Oh the sorry, the first season was fourteenth, then to finish seventeenth after that. Um but I mean, with with those, you know, with those two seasons celebrated because you know, the, like you said, the progress was so rapid that you know, did everyone just think, well, it's almost a free hit at League One, and actually they're stuck there. There's a difference, I think, between within the Accrington camp and what supporters think. I mm. think if you said that to to Coley or to his assistant Jimmy Bell or to one of the players, you'd have probably got a fat lip. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of Stanley fans who've been around for a while were genuinely thinking, well, this is brilliant because it means it's two relegations till oblivion rather than one. And there's a very, I mean, you know this better than most people. There's a sort of gallows humor 
worst case scenario amongst football supporters. And so I think there were a lot of Stanley fans that went, well, this is a bit of a turn up for the books. This is exciting, isn't it? Um, We'll see what happens. But no, certainly among the players and the management and the owner, Andy Holt, who'd come in that season that Accrington won League Two, the idea of kind of every year we're going to hang on in there and finish 17th is, Mm. is not on the agenda whatsoever. Yeah, and you mentioned Andy Holt taking over there. I mean, what what was the state of the club when when Andy Holt took it on? Well, Andy will tell the story that he went as a sponsor to a pre-season game and he knew it was bad when there wasn't any beer in the bar. (laughs) And he offered to buy some beer and ended up buying the club. Uh, How... 100% 100% true that anecdote is. I'm not mm. entirely sure, but the club financially was, I mean, it was a hand-to-mouth existence, doesn't quite do it justice. They mm. were impoverished and times were tough and fabulous people had got kept the club running and kept them in the position that they were in through strength of character and, and goodwill and um, force of character, I suppose. And... <laughs> I know a couple of individuals remortgaged their house, had other businesses on the side to try and generate some extra capital. And um, Mm. it wasn't easy. The staff didn't always get paid on time. The players didn't always get paid on time. Uh, And Andy Holt came in and he took a long look at the books and he did his due diligence like he would with any other business. And then he started to make changes and he believed that Accrington could be self-sufficient. And with selling players they've now reached the point where they pretty much are that. And there were some statistics knocking around, and I have got them somewhere, about the amount of money spent or generated from clubs in League One. And Stanley have just about been self-sufficient. Yeah, I mean, and as well, I mean, obviously, you know, it took over a few years ago, but uh, but I suppose, and I've read a lot actually from Andy Holt um, talking about football finances before the pandemic. And he said it was a struggle before the pandemic, but... I mean, once that hit, I mean, you know, how how difficult was that for clubs like Akin and Stanley? Because, I mean, even clubs higher up the pyramid were kind of on the brink when, when football had to stop. I think Andy probably approached it as he did with his other businesses. If you were a non-essential member of staff, then they used the furlough scheme. Whether you agree with whether that should apply to football or not is another debate entirely. But uh, it was a skeleton... The beauty of it, I suppose, is that there's a relatively small number of people employed in the first place. So the overheads are massive. And the fact that they don't pay the players huge wages meant that furloughing them when there was no football, for example, was possible. Um, Mm -hmm. The commercial side of things has improved immensely since Andy Holt took over. That gives you a bit of revenue that is more sustainable And he's a successful businessman and and has other businesses and other things that can help. I certainly don't think that he's sticking his hand in his pocket like Jack Walker back in the day and and injecting (laughs) money into the club. I think this idea of being as self-sufficient as possible is probably what's helped them get through. Because as soon as revenue started coming in, you sell a couple of players, then that puts everything back on an even keel. So it has been difficult. Of course, it's been difficult. I think the pandemic's been difficult for the vast majority of people and certainly the vast majority of businesses. I think with that hand at Stanley's tiller, they've been on a course that they weren't going to deviate from. And although 
I mean, it's not a popularity contest and Andy Holt's not bothered about being popular. You've seen his social media. Um, <laughs> so I don't think that'll have worried him one iota. He'll have made the decision that he thought was right for his business, which in this case happens to be a football club. Yeah. Last question on, on Andy Holt, actually, because I was reading as well that, um, you know, when he did take uh, the job on or took Acton Stanley over, he said he didn't want to become a, the owner of a football club and it, he just did it because he, he thought it was, you know, an important part of the community and he wanted to step in and he wanted to help out and he wanted to do that. I mean, it's been what, you know, has it been five, six years now he's he's been in charge there? I mean, it, it seems like he's got a big project on, stadiums getting rebuilt, the, the club are charging forward. Can you see him just being there for the foreseeable future? Is that is that the long-term thing, do you think? Well, I think this is the point of trying to make the club self-sufficient. When he... Mm came in, it was very clear that money was required to keep it going and they needed Andy Holt to come in with some money and with his business acumen and with all that sort of cross-pollination of the other businesses into the football to to help and use the accounts department for his existing business for the football club to save on doing that and do the accounting properly, all those kind of things. I think the idea is, and community is the word you used, and community is absolutely the right word, Chris, because that was the thing that from from minute one until now, he will talk about more than any other. And his desire is not to get run down by a bus, just to be clear. But he would always say, if I got run down by a bus tomorrow, I want this club to be in a position where the supporters trust can step in and can follow the things that I've put in place and operate in the way that the, me and the people I've delegated authority to, like the managing director and the club secretary and the finance director, all those kind of people. And although it might not necessarily mean continued success, whatever that may be in football these days, mm-hmm. it will be a club that is there as a community asset and kids will be able to come and watch on a Saturday and be involved in the community trust and be involved in the academy and there'll be a football club there and we won't have 1962 all over again. Or the sort of first decade, no, maybe the second decade of, of this millennium, they were sometimes literally turning the lights off and hiding away from the door when someone came knocking to try and get some money in and they didn't have any money to pay out. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's certainly turned it around on that on that front. And um, I mean, and when we come on to last season, because we talked about the, the first two seasons in League One, um, last season, you know, right up there early on in the season. Um, I was looking earlier, actually, and um, the, just after half the season was gone, there were only two points off the playoffs, but it kind of tailed off a bit after that into in the later half of the season. They finished up 11th, seven points behind the playoffs. Um, did they just run out of steam in the end? Was it kind of the size of the squad that let them down in the end? I think there was a real problem with personnel in October, November, they had 19 cases of COVID at the same time. That mm. resulted in a, a three-week layoff. And and actually, when they came back from that, the form was pretty good and they went, went on quite a good run. I'm not sure there's enough study been done of the science of it, but then when it mm. came towards the latter part of the season, there was suddenly an awful lot of injuries. And at one point, around maybe March time, there were double figures unavailable through injury. And I mean, mm. Accrington Stanley with the best will in the world, if you lose 11, 12, 13, 14 players to injury all at the same time, you're going to struggle. And what was more impressive was that the players that came in and stepped in actually did a pretty passable job and the form was you know, not absolutely disastrous. And 
that was the kind of zenith of it. And it wasn't the case that 11, 12, 13, 14 players were out injured for a large period of time. But every time John Coleman got a player back, I think he felt like he lost another one or somebody else had a setback. I mean, someone like Ross Sykes, for example, the young centre-half who is actually quite experienced for a, for a man of his age. He's only in his early 20s. He's played probably 80, 90 football league games now, but he didn't play at all. He was a COVID victim. Then he got injured and he didn't play at all from January. And mm. that is, although a young player, a player that Stanley were looking at for the future and for the present, because the more games he plays now, the better he'll get. The more of an asset he becomes, the more it becomes possible come the summer that someone comes in and spends a million quid on him. But yeah. the idea that he wasn't available to play any part at all for five months of the season means that Michael Nottingham, who was playing right wing back, will have to play centre half, which means who's going to play right wing back and so on and so forth. And it's just that accumulation of it. And I think ran out of steam is probably fair. And I'm sure mm. it's a what if scenario. I was speaking to the assistant manager just yesterday when he was saying, I, I just wonder what it would have been like if just one or two of those players hadn't been injured at the same time and we'd have had mm. a kind of core, a spine of those key men pretty much through the season with the supporting cast being disrupted, it might have been different, but it's a nice problem to have, as we discussed earlier. The idea that only finishing in the top half of League One <laughs> is, you know, not the worst situation in the world. Yeah, yeah. And actually, we, when you were talking about it, that, that reminded me, um, I, I was reading as well, that I think it was only two or three weeks ago, that um, for the, the exact scenario you've just described, Atkinson and Stanley were fined by the FA for, for going through that. Yeah, that's a fun one. Um, fined for getting COVID. I, <laughs> yeah. I, they went on an away trip. Um, I forget exactly where it was. Ipswich, I think, which is obviously a very long away trip at the kind of in the teeth of football restarting and the, the, the pandemic being as bad as it was. And they followed as many measures as were given to them. And they had to play the game and they came back and then within a couple of days of that game, we were talking 19 COVID cases. I think the thing that Andy Holt particularly and John Coleman was upset about is that it's not like it was only Accrington. You know, it's not like Accrington had this outbreak and missed loads of matches and they, you know, were an outlier for what happened in football. Accrington themselves were on the coach ready to go to Doncaster on Boxing Day and they got a phone call at 10 o'clock in the morning saying we've got a COVID outbreak, the game's off. So it's yeah. it's it's across the board. Sometimes, having done this a long time and watched Accrington a long time, sometimes I actually think things like that are quite a good thing because it, it helps that mentality of, yeah. right, sod you then. If that's how you're going to treat us, you don't want us here we're a bit of an embarrassing sort of cousin from the countryside who are a bit small and a bit, you know, not kind of the club that you want in your little elite club in this division. All right, then, EFL. We'll use that as fuel and uh, let's see if we can cause you some more problems later down the line and, and bloody some noses. And that's certainly been the case with opposition and the way that they've been perceived by opposition in the past. Again, you've seen Andy Holt's social media. I think there is... He knows what he's doing. I think he likes the idea of standing up for the little guy. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I read that. And like I said, um, Sunderland went through different scenarios. I was just surprised when I read. Uh, I didn't know they were handing out fines for it, but but there you go. Um, and uh, obviously last season, when you like 
you know, like I said, halfway through the season, looking good, trying to cling on to the, the coattails of the playoffs and, and, you know, potentially a pretty special season. I imagine there was a bit of a, a buzz around the town kind of coming, you know, a festive season last year. Yeah, it was exciting. And and they were a good team playing good football and they were no respecter of reputation. And, and so they go into every game with a degree of expectation that they would win it. I think because of the geography that we discussed earlier, Accrington is a small town that's not very well off at all, sandwiched between mm. towns that are bigger with bigger football clubs in a catchment area that have got some of the biggest football clubs in the world. So it is a small, hard core, but those who follow Stanley, my word, do they follow Stanley? And I think those that regularly were seeing what Stanley were doing, not just last season, but that was the question you asked, were enthused by it and continue to be enthused by it. And this mentality thing of we want to shake off being little old Accrington is a complicated one because John Coleman wants to shake off being little old Accrington because he feels like it puts a ceiling on expectations and he doesn't want that. However, as we've just discussed, sometimes being little old Accrington can be really helpful because people underestimate you. People think you are a certain way. People maybe dismiss you or write you off unnecessarily. So yeah, I certainly think that there's still that gallows humour that we talked about before where Stanley fans are going, oh, this is all right, isn't it? And where fans are going, wouldn't it be hilarious if we got into the championship and hosted all these massive teams every week and had them all turn up and go, where the hell are we here then? But I do also think that there is an appreciation increasingly that you look out at what's on the pitch and it's a League One football team. It's a group of players who play at League One level and play really bleeding well. Yeah. Well, you, you were talking about uh, attendances there, like Accrington Stanley, and uh, I was taking a look at those because um, obviously with the, the steep rise that we talked about, I mean, 20 years ago, you're talking 500, 600 people coming through the gate. And I noticed last couple of years in League One, it's up to around 2,500, roughly about an average. But I, I mean, I've seen comments as well with Andy Holt saying, you know, it's a bit of a struggle. You've talked about the the geography, you know, sandwiched between two two big clubs just down the road to even bigger clubs. You know, is that... Is, is that a bit of a ceiling, do you think, Accrington have got with, with the Tracton fans? No, I don't. I really don't. I think the point that I made earlier about a generation being missing, mm. when I started watching Accrington uh, at sort of 16, 17, there was quite a large cohort of people my age. And then there were people 40, 50, maybe you know, older than that, way back to, to, to vets who'd been mm. at, at Peel Park back in the day. I think at the moment, lots of people who are in my age bracket are doing real life things. You know, they're getting married and having kids and and this, that, and the other. I am optimistic that there'll be Accrington Stanley supporters who are breeding Accrington Stanley into their kids and into their families and into their cousins and nieces and nephews. And something that Andy Holt has done that is fantastic is he gives away Stanley shirts for nothing to local primary schools to a certain age group. And it's not just that, Chris, and that gets quite a lot of publicity. What's also brilliant is, unlike every other football club I can think of, he refuses to change those shirts. So the previous Stanley home kit was three seasons in a row the same home kit because he said, I've got kids, I was a kid, I don't want to give them something for free that at the end of the season becomes old and is the old one and they don't want to wear because there's a new one out. So they plan to do that again and have a, a longer lifespan and a longer period with the shirts in order to be able to 
to kind of capitalise on that. And you only need a small percentage of those hundreds and hundreds of kids every year to go, mum, dad, I want to go and watch the Stanley. And you might get an entire family there that gets bitten by the Stanley bug, as somebody once described it to me. Yeah, yeah, he's bound to get a, a handful of those. But, uh, I mean, you touched on it earlier on, actually, with um, talking about the infrastructure. And I suppose, you know, getting kids involved like that and also kind of the youth set up. Um, and like we've talked about, the, there's a new stand being built. Um, but you hinted earlier on that, the you know, building that infrastructure um, is a bit of a slow process and isn't quite keeping up with what's happening on the pitch. I think it's much quicker now than it previously was. I think that's been part of what Andy Holt has wanted to do. I mean, it's not many years ago that we were talking about the cow shed on one side of the ground and porter cabins for toilets and all that kind of thing. And there's the new Eric Worley stand has been open for a couple of years now uh, down one side. The Jack Barrett stand, which is the main stand, has now got all the development going on for boxes being put in and hospitality and a fans bar and all the infrastructure that goes with it. Stuff that you take for granted when you're a non-league team or you're struggling mm. for money. Burger vans and pie stalls mm. and bars and toilets and all this thing. Whereas back in the day, it was like, we've got Sunderland coming. It's going to be a big attendance. Can we get 50 Portaloos? That won't cost much money. Yeah, we'll just do that <laughs> and stick them outside in the car park. Whereas now it is we are putting in place enough facilities for that many Sunderland fans to come and come to the ground and stand off a chance of being able to have a pee this month rather than, you know, queuing for an overflowing portaloo in the chucking down rain in the car park in Accrington. Yeah. So I've been there before. Indeed. So I think that has caught up a little bit. I think what makes it perhaps seem like it's been quite a slow organic process is the expectations that football bring and the way other people in football do it and spend massive amounts of money on a stadium. It wouldn't have been out of the question for Andy Holt to go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend four or five million quid. I'm going to build a new stadium in an out-of-town retail park and we'll we'll go straight in there. But he doesn't want to do that because he wants this community thing to be the most important thing. He wants Stanley to be at the heart of the community and where it is and have that traditional Stanley feel to it and it's by no means in the town centre or anything like that but it's where it's been since 1970 when it, they played their first game and things like the training ground is a big deal Accrington Stanley's never had a training ground never they've begged borrowed and stealed local facilities this that and the other and now they've got the lease on what was formerly a council parks playing field it's not great it's not going to be great it's a council parks playing field so what they're doing is concentrating on putting a fence around it so that Doris can't walk her dog on it, which was pretty much the exact words that Andy Holt used when I asked him about it. Um, and then work on some of the playing surface so that you can have a half-decent pitch and accept the fact that it's not going to be ready yet. So they're not there. They're not training there at the moment. They're still begging, stealing and borrowing. They've been training on a cricket pitch in Preston. And that's been a decent local facility that's been available. And they've accepted the fact that they don't have two, three, four, five, six million pounds to spend on a training complex. So it's going to have to take some time and there'll be gradual improvements in the training facilities that they've got the lease on back in Accrington, back in the town. And hopefully mm -hmm. by 2022, they'll be there and there'll be something faintly resembling a football pitch to play on. <laughs> Sounds like it's coming along. And in terms of the, uh, the, the transfer window in the summer, um, it was a strange window for all clubs. Um, I think, you know, it, it seemed to take a while to really kind of kick in. But I was looking at the business uh, I have done, um, around 18 players coming in. That includes five loan signings. 
And a lot, what I was looking at, a lot of young players on free transfers, mainly from clubs in the Northwest who've been released. I mean, is that something to focus on? With the 18 players thing, I explain this a lot to people because they go, 18 players, my word, that's a lot. And then <laughs> you're quite right, Chris, with the age profile. For the first time, Accrington have an under-23 setup this season. Ah, it kind of right. came in last year and was for what they call bounce games and training games and that kind of stuff. They've actually entered the central, the old reserve league, the central league, and they are now playing competitive games and a huge raft. I mean, I've actually, weirdly, because I don't tidy up, got the squad list in front of me from taking it out of my notes the other day. And basically from about squad number 15 to about squad number 27, 28, you would all pretty much consider... 23s players or players who fit that age profile. So John Coleman's always had this thing about Accrington being Battersea dogs home for footballers. And he brings in footballers that nobody else wants. They've been knocked about a bit. They've not had particularly great uh, football upbringings, or there's been some sort of fundamental flaw that their previous owner hasn't been able to handle. And if you get enough of those in, you find a couple of diamonds and they allow you to go on to the next one. And I think that's the evolution of that because he's nailed it with the first team. I mean, he's, his transfer dealings, every year you go, there's two or three, you go, who, what? Where, wh-? And in a year's time, at least one or two of those, you're going, yeah, he turned out to be brilliant. So I think this is probably the evolution of that. The idea that, yes, Stanley want to produce their own players from the club's academy, but it's an absolutely massive leap from playing in the under-18s mm. to playing in League One in competitive games. And maybe this can be the bridge. So he's trying to give game time to some of those younger players. And yet there have been senior experienced signings and those loan signings you mentioned mm. the quality of those not necessarily the players because it's too early early to pass judgment but where they're getting those loan players from they've got two from mm. manchester city for christ's sake this is accrington stanley we're talking about and some loan manager one of 47 loan managers loaning out 127 players at man city has gone yeah accrington that seems like a really sensible place to send one of our young million <laughs> millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds worth of talent and the goalkeeper, James Trafford, has been superb. And his his attitude couldn't be better in terms of he's come out, massive smile on his face and gone, this is completely different to everything I've seen in my football development. And I absolutely love it. Yeah. And that, that James Trafford you mentioned, 18-year-old from, from Manchester City as well. Absolutely, um, yeah. 18. Because... And Stanley's three goalkeepers, I think they're 18, 20 and 19. Uh, well, but Sunderland have signed uh, a seventeen-year-old from Manchester City, and he's he's been the best player on the park in our game so far. So it's, it's unreal, isn't it? But uh, just trying to break it down then, because um, looking at the more senior signings, Harry Pell from Colchester, John O'Sullivan from Morecambe, um, and I'm trying to look down the list. Uh, probably Ethan Hamilton from Peterborough. So, uh, uh, other than the loan signings, are those kind of the main three who are looking at getting first-team football? Yeah. Well, Harry Pell's played pretty much every game when he's been available. He's had a couple of games out through Knox. Um, unfortunately, John O'Sullivan's been injured pretty much since he came in. It's his third spell with Stanley. You know what you're getting with John O'Sullivan. And he won promotion with Morecambe and then has come back to Accrington for, for a crack at League One. Um, I think you, you, you're right in identifying those sort of more senior guys to add to the, the, the spine and the core of the team that has been there previously. And the lone players will be important because... There's absolutely no chance that Accrington are paying the money that some of these lads are getting paid, but to pay a proportion of it in a loan deal 
and a loan deal that, let's be honest, in January, if they were rubbish, you can go, uh, yeah, we'll send them back. Thanks ever so much. That one's not worked. <laughs> if you're giving them two-year deals, you you stuck with them. If you're yeah. if you're not giving them a two-year deal and you can get rid of them in January, that makes that deal a little bit better. And law of averages says a couple of loan signings will be great. A couple of them might yeah. not be the best, but it's a gamble worth taking if it's not going to break the bank. Yeah, and you can put five in your match day squad, so it's worth taking that taking that punt, isn't yeah. it, on that? But uh, but yeah, and I, and I saw a, a comment as well last year. I, th- I can't remember whether it was from John Coleman or, or Andy Holt, but they, one of them um, stated that the wage bill was in the bottom two. It was bottom two wage bill of uh, of League One last season. Is that going to be the same again? Is that kind of there or thereabouts? Yeah, I would imagine so. I, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly the mm. figures that we're, that we're using here, but it won't be dramatically different to what it was last season. And I'm not, I'm not massively sure that's important, to be honest. In the mm. same way as I'm sure Sunderland get absolutely slaughtered for the amount of money that gets spent and look at that stadium and look at the resources and look at the infrastructure, blah, 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 blah. It's about the team that you put out on a Saturday afternoon or a Tuesday night. And if you find a way to get players that can do that job on whatever budget, then you're doing your job. And and that's the manager's job. And it goes back to the thing I said about John Coleman wanting to dispel Little Accrington. He doesn't want to keep going on about it. There are times like this weekend when it is blindingly obvious. And my first trip to the stadium of like watching Accrington, I, I, I'll tell you this tale because it, it kind of sums it up. <laughs> Um, in one of the many press rooms at the Stadium of Light, and I do emphasise the word many, and you can ask me later how many press rooms there are at Accrington, um, I was wandering through with a colleague, me and my colleague, the only visiting press, just two of us, and a few of the Sunderland guys were sitting around a table. It was fairly early in the season, I think, if memory serves me correctly, and they were really impressed, and this conversation was going on about how they were impressed they were that since relegation, Sunderland had trimmed the wage bill by... And they did give the figures, and I can't remember the figures, but they were impressed that the wage bill had been trimmed by two million quid or something. And me and my colleague were just walking up all those stairs to the back of the stand to go to the press box. And uh, I looked at her and she looked at me and I said, how long would that pay our wages, the reduction in Sunderland's <laughs> wage? And it was like, yeah, probably about a year and a half, I think. It was something like two million quid and Stanley's wage budget was yeah. 1.1 or something at the time. And that does kind of bring it home. But... Wickham have done it. I mentioned Burton earlier. They don't spend fortunes. They haven't spent fortunes. They've got out of this division. John Coleman's favourite one is, if it was about money, it would just be two chairmen throwing checks at each other. And it's not. Uh, Well, again, it shows the kind of job he's doing. But uh, look, just looking at the departures as well, I read that uh, John Coleman wanted to keep uh, Cameron Burgess at the club, um, but he left to go to Ipswich for... An undisclosed fee, of course. They always seem to be an undisclosed fee at the minute. But was that a bit of a blow over the summer to lose uh, Burgess? I think the fact that he's left-footed, he provides balance on the left-hand side of a back three. He'd been one of the better performers last season. That is obviously a blow. And we talked about senior players and players with experience earlier. He was one of those. I think possibly it's the lesser of two evils. If you get an undisclosed fee, (laughs) £750,000, for for Cameron Burgess... (laughs) that can go a long way in helping all of the things that we've talked about, recruitment, but things off the field as well. But I tell you what, Chris, what it does mean is that when Peterborough come on deadline day and say, here's an undisclosed fee for Colby Bishop, Andy Holt can turn around to Darren McAntony and say, uh, how about no? 
Yeah, I was hoping for a number because I've been searching all day to try and find a, it's a somewhere that in that ballpark. Right. Okay. Fair, no, I'm I'm glad I've heard that because it's driving us around the bench trying to find a number today. But uh, I mean, I mean, taking into account you know all of that business been talking about last season where they were on the brink and then tailed off for for various reasons. I mean, this summer we'll go back to before a ball was kicked. Um, what was the expectation for Fagan Stanley? Not for the first time. I think it's hard to to stick a pin in that. I think if you ask mm-hmm. a lot of Stanley fans who've been around for longer than the League Two promotion, they would say, oh, will we take just avoiding relegation? If you're being pragmatic about it, yes. If you were to ask John Coleman, he would say, well, we were on the cusp of the playoffs last season. Why can't we get in the playoffs? I think last season's finish, 11th, was the highest the club have had since the 1950s. I'm aware it's not technically the same club because it's a different company, blah, 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 blah. It's the same. Yeah, it, it is, um, really. yeah. It's the same fans, it's the same people, it's the same community. So since the 1950s, and that's a massive deal. And I think if, for a, for a long time, John Coleman and Jimmy Bell had a record of improving the league finish every season. And that is something they were really, really proud of. And it's not quite been able to continue, give or take a few places. But that's what they will always aim to do. And I think top half of League One can't believe you know, 17 year old me is sitting here somewhere looking at me going I can't believe you're about to say this out loud but top half of league one to me feels like a good outcome but it's not an outcome that would have me going my that's incredible we're in the top half of league one it's Accrington Stanley so yeah, somewhere around about last season maybe with fewer mishaps and fewer COVID layoffs and injury layoffs maybe a little higher and I'll be honest Chris I wouldn't be staggered I wouldn't be staggered if they finished in the top six. Well, I mean, they've, like I said, they've got off to a cracking start. Uh, four wins uh, in the first six. But uh, have, have the performances been a kind of a reflection of the results so far? Or have they got another gear, do you think? Oh, without question, yeah. John Coleman is famously fairly grumpy in post-match interviews, particularly when Stanley have won. And he's taken that to new heights in recent weeks where they've, they've won all of their home games. And after everyone, he's come out and said, we can play better than that. I'm not going to attempt the voice, by the way, because he hammers me for my Scouse accent, so I'm not <laughs> going there. Um, but he's come out and said, there's more in us. We've got a lot more. We need to be more clinical. He's been frustrated that they've taken one goal leads and then the games have kind of petered out. It's not been the Alamo. They've not been you know, forced to defend for their lives, but they've not been super comfortable. That comes from going and nicking another one and winning 2-0 or 3-1 or, or whatever. I think... If you look at the basic facts and figures of it, I think they've only scored six goals. Mm. And that is something 1-0 wins win your leagues, people say. And I can I can agree with that. If you're scoring a goal a game, are you going to get promoted? No, not unless you've got an incredible defence. Yeah. However, the other way of looking at that is Colby Bishop and Dion Charles between them up front last season got somewhere in the region of 30 to 35 goals. I think maybe 32, 33 in all competitions between them. They've got one each at the moment. Now, I don't envisage that's going to continue with them being in single figures. I think Charles particularly goes on little streaks where he'll get four, five, six in four, five, six games, and then he'll go quiet for a bit. Lots of strikers are like that. I find it difficult to believe that the way that they play and the personnel they've got at that top end of the pitch, that they aren't going to score more goals. And there isn't more of a more of a sort of fourth, fifth, top gear, whatever you want to call it. I also think it's worth noting that they've changed slightly the way that they play. Although the system is the same, the 
three at the back and the wing backs. Losing Mark Hughes in the summer, who was, uh, he won't mind me saying this, an ageing centre-half with no pace, but was a terrific footballer and could start the moves from centre-half and would almost be the playmaker that deep in the pitch and, and would get them going. They don't have that now. They have three, a combination of three defenders from about four or five choices to play in that three-man defence who are head-it-and-kick-it men. And call me old-fashioned, Chris, I'm fond of a head-it-and-kick-it man, but you're not <laughs> going to ask him to play out from the back because disaster will ensue. So there's been a little bit more work done on using the wide players, sometimes using those front men that I've mentioned and going a little bit more direct. I think the crucial thing is you'll see two or three Accrington games and you might see four or five different ways of approaching it within those games because they are very pragmatic and they're not wedded to this is our philosophy and any of that modern day nonsense. <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate that because I used to be a head and kick it man uh, myself when I could run uh, back in the day, but uh... That was uh, quite a few years ago now. Um, we said we've getting they've getting off to a good start. We talked about last season and what happened, and you said that the COVID had a lot, you know infections had a lot to do with that. But I mean, in terms of their squad, do you think they're better equipped this time around? I think they've kept the spine of that squad. They've added the goalkeeper Trafford, who we've already mentioned, who at this early stage looks like a terrific addition. Nathan Baxter, they had on loan from Chelsea last season, who was terrific, but then was one of the many injury victims and didn't play again after about February time. They are pretty comparable in, in terms of their ability. Burgess has gone, but a couple of centre-halves have come in. Sam Shering on loan from Bournemouth has played a couple of games, looked all right. Harvey Rogers has gone in there. He's been with the club a long time, but has never really got a run of games. He's been playing right back or wing back and he's, he's gone into centre-half and done well. Uh, Pell's come into midfield and been excellent. I think what's telling, I mentioned O'Sullivan before, Seamus Keneally, for me, although I think he's 33, 34 now, the Irish captain central midfield player, is crucial. And he's the kind of player that, no one ever notices and then he doesn't play and everyone goes, we're getting overrunning midfield, what's going on? And it's because he does those things like nicking the ball and passing it five yards or making an interception, making a block and he hasn't played this season and that is something that would cause Stanley fans to come out in cold sweats last season and the season before. What's credit to them is that David Morgan and Harry Pell and Matt Butcher as a midfield three in there have found a way to make it work and if Seamus Keneally was, was fully fit, one of those three wouldn't be playing. So there are areas where they look quite strong, Chris. Centre forward, I mentioned Charles and Bishop. They've brought in um, a couple of lone players, Mumbongo from, from Burnley and, and the uh, mm. the young lad, Javan Malcolm from, from West Brom. Those two are unknown quantities. But one of the two of them, if they turn out to be decent, you've suddenly got three viable centre forward options when you like to play two up front. When with respect, last season if you didn't have Charles or Bishop, you were probably putting a square peg in a round hole. So there are a lot of young players in there, the under-23s things that we mentioned. Maybe the 13, 14 senior core players are stronger this season. If you keep them all fit, if you get O'Sullivan and Keneally and Joe Pritchard's out injured at the moment, and he, up until he got injured, was probably Accrington's best player this season. If you can win games with those three missing, all of whom would pretty much start in your best team I think that's probably a good sign but it puts pressure on them yeah 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 and I mean just to I might this might be kind of acting Stanley's fans 
worst nightmare scenario talking about this, but uh, we've talked a lot about John Corbett and his record, and he's done an amazing job. Um, and acting, and from from an outside point of view, it it just looks like a perfect fit. John Coleman just looks like a perfect fit for being manager of Acrid and Stanley. I've read it as well, you know, how much he gets along with Andy Holt. You know, they have a drink on the coach on the way back. You know, the the good friends. I, I mean, can you ever see John Coleman maybe getting tempted by by taking an offer if there's one there, or do you think he he just wouldn't leave Acrid and Stanley and he'd be loyal to them? When he went to Rochdale in 2012, he said, "I don't want to be Ken Barlow." <laughs> And I think now he's realised that there's not much wrong with being Ken Barlow if you do a good job of being Ken Barlow. And this is the sad state of some areas of football, Chris. I don't think that John Coleman's reputation is such with the people who make decisions to appoint football managers at football clubs that they would consider John Coleman for their clubs regardless of the unbelievable job he's done for 20 years in two spells coming up this Christmas. Mm -hmm. So... There will be a time after John Coleman, but by then the legacy of John Coleman and Andy Holt will hopefully be that the infrastructure is in place, the foundations are in place, and who knows? There may even be a coach in Stanley's system already, whether it's Jimmy Belly's assistant, John Doolan, the first-team coach, Jed Brannan, who's the under-23s coach, all of whom are former Stanley players as well, all of whom have got that link to the people. You know, they're all Liverpool fans, apart from John Doolan, who'll beat me to death for calling him a Liverpool fan because he's an Evertonian. Um, but <laughs> that Liverpool model of the boot room and, and producing coaches as well as players, who knows? But John Coleman has been quite open in saying that he doesn't expect to go anywhere and he's a granddad now. And to be perfectly honest, if I can be inarticulate for a moment, I'm not sure he could be asked with it. I'm not sure he could be mm. asked with going in and the pressure and the nonsense that he would get from yeah. a new group of supporters going, who's this old, bold Scouse fella? Yeah, and a new owner as well. Absolutely, yeah. But uh, but I'm just glad you've set uh, you've set homework for uh, every listener who's under the age of 25 who needs to look up who Ken Barlow is. There now. you go. That's their that's their assignment. Uh, so this Saturday, how do you expect them to to approach the game on Saturday at the stadium? Like, well, what they won't do is worry too much about Sunderland and the way that Sunderland play, or give too much heed to the surroundings and the atmosphere and stuff like that. Stanley will go and play in the way that they want to play. You you will see all of the things you would expect to see to try and get the home crowd either quiet or ideally on the Sunderland players' case. It will be a very different prospect to go in there behind closed doors last season when, when it was an absolutely terrific crackers game of football, by the way. Um, if it had had fans in, it would have had a bit of everything. But I suspect the game wouldn't have panned out like that with fans in the ground. Hypothesis again. Um <laughs> They'll look to play to their strengths, which, as I say, the front two are a handful. And I know that Colby Bishop gave Sunderland a handful last time at the Stadium of Light. And they will try to keep a level of defensive solidity that in the majority of the games this season, they've displayed. Not in all of them. There have been a couple of games. I mean, they were shocking at MK Dons. And in the first game of the season at Wickham. So the away games, a couple of them, have, have been a concern. There is this balancing act to be had between we want to go there and try and win the game. I don't care if it's Sunderland or, you know, somebody in the Northwest Counties. We're going to approach it the same and go and win it and it's a game of football. But there is still, and you can't get away from this, 
everybody outside of Accrington Stanley expects Accrington to go to Sunderland and get beat. Yeah, a lot's based on, you know, 100 years of history rather than... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and this is a little game that we play week. following Accrington around the country where you wait for the mm. first mention of clubs like Accrington or it's mm. Accrington Stanley in the context of, oh, they're very small, aren't they? And sometimes you don't even have to go on social media. Sometimes it happens in the press box. And as you say, it's I understand it. I understand why you would go, but it's Accrington Stanley. But then what you're not doing is looking at the league table and the results and the performances and the players and the manager and all of those things that are actually football measurable. And it is why we have league tables and a pyramid and promotion and relegation. Yeah, yeah, that's the beauty of the game, isn't it? Having teams like that coming through. But you mentioned, uh, just quickly, you mentioned, because I was reading um, about that performance um, at MK Dons. So it was, it was important that they bounced back on Saturday and beat Shrewsbury at home. And that was a big one after that MK Dons game. Yeah, and it was a big one given the international break and that there were, I think there were only three games in League One. And yeah. John Coleman was not impressed that Stanley had to play because so many clubs have had games called off when you know somebody who sits yeah. on their bench or is in their squad gets called up by the Cape Verde under-21s or something. And Stanley <laughs> lose Trafford and Charles, who would start every game, basically, and be among the first names on the team sheet. And again, there was a degree of, if this was a club with a bigger reputation, that maybe this would not happen. Maybe you wouldn't have to play the game. But it was at least to an extent, mind games. They went, they won the game, professional performance. He didn't think they played great. That's probably a good sign. Yeah. And you've mentioned uh, quite a lot of names who've been in the team, but um, I mean, who, who's in form? Who's who's the danger man that uh, we should be watching out for? Um, I think I mentioned Ross Sykes earlier. If you watch Sheffield United under Chris Wilder a couple of seasons ago, the idea of one of the centre-halves galloping forward and playing like a, a full-back or a, or a winger at times, that's been entertaining. Um He's a big gangly fella. It doesn't look the most graceful all the time, but it's been effective. And there is, there has been more than one occasion where midfielders on the opposition have sort of looked around and looked at the dugout like, where's where's he come from? Where's he going? What's what's all that about? Um, he's a terrific young prospect. Trafford, the goalkeeper, is is excellent. Um, Harry Pell will get booked. That's you know water is wet. Bears defecating towards the Pope's a Catholic and Harry Pell will get booked. But he's a combative, big character in that midfield who the biggest compliment I can pay him is it feels like he's played for Accrington for years and he's played six or seven games. You can't go beyond the supply line and the finishing. Sean McConville scored his first goal in what felt like about 25 years at Sunderland last season. He'd been out with a very serious Achilles injury that could have been career-ending at his age. He then got COVID, which is par for the course last season, and he battled his way back, and he had the misfortune of sitting next to me in the commentary box for the majority of that time that he was out, so he was absolutely desperate to get back on the pitch. Um, (laughs) I'm not a stats man, Chris. But I did quite enjoy mm. that there are only two players in the whole of the Premier League and the Football League to have had more assists than Sean McConville since he came back to Accrington in 2015. If you're interested, Nicky Adams and some bloke called Kevin De Bruyne. But I don't remember him playing for Northampton on a Tuesday night in anywhere. Um, <laughs> Couldn't hack it. No, exactly. <laughs> so McConville's supply uh, and Bishop and Charles have the potential and the ability and the track record to score the goals. They haven't done it this season so far. The longer it goes on without that happening, the more questions will be asked. But they are the sort of combination 
that Stanley can can make the most hay from. And that's a little in-joke because Sean McConville used to use the phrase make hay in commentary all the time and he got the mickey taken ferociously by his teammates. So I have to use Sean McConville and make hay as much as possible. <laughs> well, I'll not, um, I'll not ask you for a prediction for the game, but what I will ask you is for a definitive prediction on whether Accrington will make the top six this season. It's the hardest question you've asked me, Chris. Um, <laughs> I think... They probably won't, but I don't think they'll be far away. I think it only needs one or two of those 13, 14 core players that we've talked about to get injured, get bought by somebody, go off the boil, whatever these variables can be. And without wishing to sound like I'm taking the mickey out of a Sunderland supporter on a Sunderland podcast, <laughs> there are now so many, quotes massive clubs in this division that at some point, six of them have got to get their act together, haven't they? Yeah. And and actually, we, we, were, we were doing predictions on League One in the summer. And when you started having a look, there's 10, 12, maybe even more teams you could in the mix where you could say, well, they could make the playoffs, they could make the playoffs. And... and I mean, even looking at the early League One table, obviously, Ackman doing well. But you look at Ipswich, I think Doncaster down the bottom. So it's it hasn't sorted itself out yet. So, yeah, there's a, there's a long way to go. But, uh, but are you making the trip up? I am indeed, yes. Good stuff. Looking forward to it? Always look forward to it. It'll be far better with spectators in the stadium. It was one of the weirder experiences behind closed mm. doors. I was really lucky that I did 60-odd games last season behind closed doors. And, and I told myself I'd never got you get used to it. And it was things like going to the Stadium of Light and it being there being 25 people knocking about before the game that made me not get used to it. Um, as I say, the game was terrific, but it does make you a little bit self-conscious when I was doing the commentary with Joe Pritchard, who I mentioned earlier, who was injured at the time, who actually missed the first five minutes of the game because the Stadium of Light is so vast that he got lost on his way from the dressing room <laughs> to the press box. So I commentated on my own for the first five minutes, by which time Accrington were already a goal down, I think. Um, and when Stanley scored and Sean McConville scored the equalising goal and all that meant to him and all that meant to us because we know him really well, um, I was acutely aware of the fact that we were the only people in the entire stadium making any noise apart from the Accrington <laughs> players who were celebrating on the pitch. Not a feeling I was fond of, Chris, I'll be perfectly honest. It made me really, really rather self-conscious and... When you look like I do, being self-conscious is not a good idea. So I'm really looking forward to the atmosphere. And the one thing that I hope everybody can remember, whether you're an Accrington fan, a Sunderland fan, an Ipswich fan, a fan of Gloucester City, who I watched lose 9-0 at Chorley at the weekend, we can go to these games now and we can be there and we can yeah. enjoy it and we can experience it and we can smell it and we can taste it and we don't have to watch it on a computer screen watching let's be honest, not a great stream of the game that is not in any way a, a replication of what the experience is like. And I I don't know what your experience has been like, but I certainly feel like supporters generally have had that feeling of, I'm excited to be here. There's still that, yeah. come on, entertainers, and there's still that getting on your team's case after 15 minutes when they misplace a few passes because that's part of the deal. But I've really, really enjoyed that feeling of there being a buzz around the place and all the games I've been to so far have had that kind of buzz that you have before the first couple of games of the season when everybody's got that optimism so to be able to go and I don't know how many people will be there in the stadium of light but to be able to go and play a part in that and experience it firsthand is great but I do have to add the legal disclaimer here that this is not an Accrington Stanley coming for a day trip we're coming to this big club etc 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 
it's just great to have football again the way it should be. Yeah. And I mean, if, if it's uh, like this game so far this season, should be expecting a, a decent uh, 30,000, maybe just uh, maybe maybe a little bit higher because um, we're, we're on a decent run. But actually, if it's anything like that 3-3 three, three that you're talking about, we might have a game on our hands. They've all been decent, actually, at the Stadium of Light yeah. between these two teams. The the 2-2 two, two that was on TV was, was a, as I remember it, a terrific game. I remember the... Sky coverage being like it was an FA Cup third round tie between a Premier League team and uh, a team from the Step 7 or something. But apart from that, I mean, I didn't have to watch it because I was there, but I did see it back subsequently. And I did have Stanley supporting mates who were texting me while I was commentating, going, you want to see what they've done again now? They've just done a milk advert joke. Yeah, of course they've done a milk advert joke. Um, But the actual games, even the ones that Stanley have lost, have been pretty entertaining. I've killed it now. I'd be nil-nil. It'd be an absolute shocker, but I've enjoyed them. Yeah, well, we'll know who to blame if it is. But but I hope you have a fantastic weekend. I hope you enjoy your trip up. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, and uh, enjoy the experience. But uh, on that note, just want to say thank you very much, Dan. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, all the best for the season ahead. Been great to chat, Chris. Thank you. Cheers, Dan. And uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, keep a look out at Roker Report for all the build-up ahead of the game against Arrington on Saturday. Uh, but from us, it's bye for now. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.